0: Hello and welcome to the Access of Space, Defense, and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research, breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space, defense, and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to Episode 4, Commercial Space and its Impact on Asia. To understand this landscape of commercial space in Asia, we have today with us the subject matter expert, Mr. Blaine Kersu. Hi, Blaine. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey Omkar. thanks a lot for having me.
0: Likewise, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, as we'll be taking a deep dive into this topic, can you please provide us a brief outlook of your journey in the space industry?
1: Sure thing. Absolutely. So I've been in the space in the SATCOM sector for a little more than 12 years now. I originally started off as an intern with SCS over in their, uh, their office in The Hague, uh, doing some different uh, market research and some kind of customer analyses back in, in 2010. Um, after that, I joined Northern Sky Research. It's an industry research and consulting house. I worked for them for a little more than five years, uh, primarily focused on the global SATCOM sector. And then a little more than five years ago, I started to see an increasing amount of activity coming out of the Chinese commercial space side of things. And and you know in China, one of the relatively few uh, subsectors that is not so dynamic is Satcom. You have China Satcom, which still has kind of a monopoly. And so there was not so much overlap between my day job and these China commercial space companies. And so after seeing quite a lot of of growth there. I, I left my role with NSR, started my own company, focusing more on the Chinese commercial space side of things. Um, and then I have since uh, been working with, with EuroConsult for about four years as an affiliate consultant, uh, still primarily focused on global satcom with them. So uh, this kind of journey from peer focus on satcom to now over well, these past five years doing kind of one foot in the global satcom sector, and then one foot in the kind of broader Chinese space uh, sector as well. So um it, it's exciting time to have been covering the industry and uh, looking forward to, to getting into some of these topics with you today.
0: Thank you very much. I think that's a very amazing portfolio, I would say, <laughs> to with with respect to you know the niche market. I, I know that you are a Chinese market expert, especially from the space and satellite perspective, but mainly focused on the satellite communication. So I'm I'm just coming to that part. Uh, but I'm I'm very curious to know, like, as a SATCOM expert, uh, having spent so much time in Asia, can you please share with us how you have experienced the evolution of SATCOM technologies in the Asian region?
1: Sure thing. Yeah, so definitely quite a lot of change happening in the Asian region, you know, over the, the 12 years or so that I've been covering the sector. And I mean, I think really at a, at a macro level, the biggest change we've seen is that Satcom is becoming considerably more mainstream. So, I mean, I, I joined the industry back at a time where you were still looking at, you know, a megahertz of satellite capacity might cost three, four, five thousand $5,000 per month or more, uh, even for like data type of connectivity, you still see some of those price points in the kind of DTH side of the house. but But in general, I mean, 12 years ago, this was the norm, was you know, thousands of dollars per megahertz. And over these 12 years, that has fallen to, you know, almost in, in all cases, like hundreds of dollars per megabits per second, and, and you know, maybe a thousand-ish per megahertz for uh, for data connectivity. And, and I mean, one of the one of the results, but also one of the kind of uh, supporting factors of this has been just enormous increases in the amount of capacity that we see being sold. So, I mean, 10, 12 years ago, uh, you know, a large satellite would have been 10 gigabits per second of of total throughput. And, you know, the very largest ones in Asia at that time, you'd have had like TICOM's Star, which was very early to the game, and they they brought some 30, 40 GBPS of of high throughput capacity. Um, And so, again, I think that we've seen over these last 12 years, just this enormous increase in... The amount of capacity that's being sold, and and again, satellite becoming more mainstream as as a result of that. Uh, yeah, so definitely a lot of changes that happened in the industry in Asia Pacific over the course of my by, by twelve years covering the satcom sector, and I think at, at a high level. Uh, the biggest change has been just this significant increase in in kind of the satellite has become more mainstream, let's say. And this has been caused by a number of different factors. But I think the biggest ones is this advent of high throughput satellites and just much more capacity coming into the market. And as a result, uh, a lot lower price points per megabit per second. So I mean, thinking back to 12 years ago, when I first came into the sector, uh, we were looking at, you know, pricing in the several thousand US dollars per megahertz per month, even for for data connectivity. Uh, And now you're seeing pricing at, you know, a thousand ish per megahertz. And you're also seeing uh, more efficient, uh, you know, better, better spectral efficiencies of more bits per hertz. And so again, the end result is that you can have programs like in Indonesia, for example, Bakti, which is their universal service obligation program. I mean, they're buying hundreds of gigabits per second of capacity from satellite. Now, a lot of that is domestic, You know they're, they're getting their own satellites, but it's also presented opportunities for commercial foreign satellite operators to sell six or 10 or 15 gigabits per second to a single customer in Indonesia. And again, these are numbers that would have been unfathomable even 10 or 15 years ago. And I mean, just to, to think about it in a different way, the largest satellite by far in Asia Pacific up until a handful of years ago was TICOM's IP Star, and that was launched in I think 2005 or so. And at that time, it was you know revolutionary, some 40-ish gigabits per second of high throughput capacity. Um, and and now we're seeing you know terabit per second satellites from ViaSat. Let's say so. So again, I think this just massive increase in the order of magnitude of, of capacity coming into the market. Which has really enabled satellite to serve much bigger applications, and, and I mean just one other separate uh, example from from Bhakti in Indonesia. We've seen pretty large USO programs in, in Malaysia, for example, that are once again looking at an order of magnitude gigabits per second of capacity, and you're looking at you know per site throughput of some you know ten megahertz or something like that, thirty megabits per second. So uh, just this this un- amount of bandwidth, even in the context of 10 or 15 years ago, I think has been a really major driver of change in the region. And I think there's this kind of, there's this potential moving forward for a virtuous cycle where satellite operators keep bringing in considerably more capacity at a lower price point, and countries are becoming more aware of the the competitive nature of satellite, And so the countries and the governments are now saying, well, we want to connect our rural populations, and before we we wouldn't even think about satellite because it was just totally not cost effective. Um, but now it, it's it's a real option. So I think moving forward, you have the potential for this virtuous cycle where you know there's more government uh, support for satellite that allows satellite operators to invest more into bigger you know bigger platforms and. And that allows for you know lower price capacity and, and and so on. So this has been, I think, a very big change and and one that we're still watching play out. I mean, the Bakhti program in Indonesia, that's only a couple of years in, and they still have multiple satellites in the pipeline. And I mean, they they it, it has a lot of support. So these these are relatively this is a new phenomenon, I would say, these programs that are using tens or or hundreds of gigabits per second of capacity.
0: Wow, that's that's a quite a lot of developments, I would say. And with respect to one of the point that you mentioned at the moment, the competitiveness uh, in the satellite uh, domain. So we have seen like the Asia has been one of the lucrative satellite broadcasting markets. I think with India, along with that, India being one of the hot spot for several companies, you know, including Airtel. Uh, so, can you tell us about how the region is diversifying its commercial footprint in the satellite sector, like moving apart from the broadcasting? Like the market we can see it now, right now, it's transitioning from broadcasting to broadband. So, what are your general thoughts on this, like how the market is diversifying?
1: Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And I mean, to your point, yeah, definitely broadcast has been the bread and butter of the SATCOM industry since the beginning of time, let's say. And so you've now, you've seen, you know, as, as the price of capacity has come down, the pricing for video has remained fairly you know, stable because you have these long-term contracts, but still it puts pressure on, on that pricing and it creates this need for satellite operators and and other players in the value chain to diversify. And I think you've seen this in a couple of different ways. So the first point, uh, which I, you alluded to a little bit with with, um, uh, with the example in India, I mean, we've seen in, in say, the Philippines, uh, there's Signal TV, which is a DTH platform. They have about 3 million subscribers, if my memory is correct. And you know they have historically used satellite for direct-to-home broadcast. And as a kind of premium service provider in the Philippines, there's a lot of free-to-air content. And so the idea of paying, let's say, 60 or 80 US dollars per month for, for DTH, it, it's, you know, kind of an upper to upper middle class proposition. And Signal, they, over the last couple of years, have tried to push into satellite broadband. They had, If I'm not wrong, they've invested in an iDirect hub, um, and they they now have more infrastructure available for satellite broadband, and they're, they're trying to push this to again, what is already an upper to upper middle class consumer in the Philippines. And so I think this really gets back to the point I mentioned earlier of significantly more capacity at a lower price is allowing satellite to do things that they could not previously do. And so I think the first type of diversification is you see these existing, let's say DTH platforms as an example, moving into providing broadband via satellite because they already have some satellite expertise and they already have a pretty good, uh, you know, customer base for these satellite programs. Um, the other element I would say is that we're seeing more either diversification uh, by satellite operators into, say, certain service provider type of areas. So this includes things like, you know, AsiaSat has started their Salus, S-A-I-L-A-S, I believe, uh, kind of a maritime managed service platform where they're trying to have a more direct connection with you know shipping companies to to provide maritime satcom service and and i think this is you know but one example of this trend of, of satellite operators getting closer to the end customer and trying to sell them um, what we could call let a managed megabits per second as opposed to what was more common say 10 15 years ago which was just sort of raw megahertz being sold uh, to some of these large service providers so I think those are, are two examples of diversification. Would be the the customers like BTH platforms diversifying into consumer broadband or other verticals, and then the satellite operators themselves kind of vertically integrating. The other element I think that's been interesting to see is you know these let's say mega service providers like you know, your Speedcasts of the world, where they have dramatically increased the amount of bandwidth that they're buying. So there was a press release by Speedcast about six weeks ago, let's say where they talked about they're they're increasing their network by an additional 13 gbps of capacity which was i think almost doubling their 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 total network size i mean it it was a massive increase in bandwidth and again this is uh primarily driven in the case of speedcast as far as i understand driven by a strong rebound in the cruise market and also the oil and gas and energy markets both of which are relatively new in terms of satellite selling very large amounts of bandwidth. Now, satellite has served oil and gas since the beginning of time with relatively low bandwidth uh, services. Um, but we've started to see, you know, uh, as an example, O3B having a, a trunk at a, at a mine site or something like that, where it could be hundreds of megabits per second uh, at a single site. So yeah, a, a lot of diversification going on. And, and I think you know, from a satellite operator perspective, you do still see a few regional operators that are very focused on broadcast. And, and even for those operators, that le- level of focus, and, and they're trying to come up with, you know, more value-added services around the broadcast. I mean, they, they have, let's say, eroded at a less fast rate than one might expect. So, um, and, and I guess just one, one very last point to tie into one, my my previous answer about these universal service projects, you know, we see the operator Miasat, for example, in Malaysia, just last week, they launched their Miasat 3D satellite, which has about 30 gigabits per second of Ka band capacity. And that's primarily going to be serving universal service and other kind of um, remote connectivity in Malaysia. So that, you know, Miasat having been very much a broadcast-focused satellite operator for a long time, you know, parent company being a a large broadcaster in Astro Malaysia, um, the fact that they are now Clearly, putting a lot more emphasis on this, you know, high throughput capacity, serving broadband access type of, of services. This is, I think, uh, an indication of, of a larger trend, which is you know operators throwing up more capacity and then trying to sell that capacity in a managed way.
0: I think yes, the mobility market, as you mentioned, it's, it's growing, uh, and with respect to the USB Universal Service Project, I think. We have observed quite a lot of these things in Malaysia, Indonesia, as well, as you, as you mentioned, uh, where the government is actually encouraging the private companies to take part and, you know, amplify the satellite services, especially in the rural areas. They are trying to uh, come up with such a policy framework where only satellite services can be encouraged. And that's that's the reason actually I asked this question, because, you know, we are observing a trend where broadcasting is transforming into a broadband so just uh, I think we have already reached the niche market point. But just before uh, proceeding ahead to that, I would like to know, uh, just because you know there are countries like Australia and South Korea building their independent space capabilities. So how do you see, or uh, I would say, like, can you provide us a brief outlook on commercial space sector of these countries? Because both Australia and South Korea, they are building the independent capa- uh, capacities uh, along with the well-established players like China, India, and Japan, like Australia also recently approved their own military satellite as well uh, for the communication purposes. So, how do you see or how do you possibly, you know, uh, envision how these countries will take a uh, lead role? Like, for example, India is specializing in mainly, you know, the launch segment. China is specializing primarily, you know, I would say investment in the commercial space sector. So how do you envision these two countries proceeding ahead uh, into the future, how these two countries will possibly evolve as a specialized, you know, nations in some verticals of the space industry?
1: Sure. So I think it's an interesting comparison looking at you know, Australia and South Korea compared to, let's say, China or India. Um, I think that if we look at, let's say, China, just to give a very short, I mean, I think China is is really focused on developing, you know, comprehensive space capabilities, if we can use such a phrase, you know, they, they have space station, space exploration, a variety of launch vehicles, different satellite manufacturing capabilities, etc. And if we compare that to say Australia or South Korea, these two countries I think are a little bit more um, selective in what they're trying to do. And, and part of the reason is that they're just, you know, smaller countries with relatively smaller economies and, and therefore less funding to put into space. But also, I think part of it is is pragmatism. I mean, it it might not make sense to try to do every single thing. And and in the Chinese context, I think you're going to see a lot of inefficiency as China tries to develop these comprehensive space capabilities. So again, getting back to Australia, South Korea, I think Australia is a little bit further along on this journey. Their space agency was started a few years ago, and and they've really been pushing this for, for quite a few years. South Korea, they've had you know, KARI is the, the Korea Aerospace Research Institute. I mean, they're, they're, they've they're been around for a long time, but the Korean government and, and the push into space has been a somewhat more recent phenomenon. Uh, I think in both cases, so Australia, South Korea, there, there are space capabilities and, and kind of the the political support for those capabilities. This is being driven by, at least to a certain extent, national security. I mean, obviously, in the case of South Korea, you have uh, the the outstanding issues with the North. And I mean, that that is a, that is a serious concern for the South Koreans. And so I could envision there being a, a pretty significant level of kind of national security consideration going on there. Um, in the case of Australia, to a somewhat lesser extent, but I think that they're finding the neighborhood in which they live is becoming increasingly uncertain with China being a little bit more assertive in the region. And so I think in both cases, you're going to see security being a major component I think with Australia as well, you've seen this interesting willingness to experiment a little bit to try to solve some of the specific problems that Australia faces as a country. So the best example that I could think of would be the two uh, NBN, the National Broadband Network Satellites, Skymuster is the, the name they gave those two satellites, um, and those would have been launched something to the effect of five, to seven years ago. And the idea was that you have this national broadband network, which is a primarily terrestrial network of, of fiber to the home and, and other technologies that aim to connect all Australians to high-speed internet. And at a certain point, the government said, well, we there's going to be a certain percentage of Australians, let's call it 2% or something, that are living so far outside of any kind of terrestrial connectivity that we need to launch these two high-throughput satellites. And I mean, that was... More than a billion U.S. dollars. I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but something like 1.6 billion, possibly Australian dollars, sounds vaguely familiar. Um, but digressing, I mean, th- those two satellites are, as far as I know, not especially highly utilized overall. Although they do have certain beams that are very full, and I think overall there, there's been there has been uptake. Um, but it's just it's an interesting comment on, on Australia's willingness to. Uh, to experiment a little bit and, and to try to solve these problems that you could, you know, say are perhaps not uniquely Australian, but are certainly more acute in a country that has, uh, you know, such a vast and relatively uninhabited interior. To, to be able to try to connect everyone in that area. So uh, yeah, I, I think these are just a couple of high-level uh, ideas about you know Australia, South Korea. I, I think moving forward, um, you're going to see you know, large industrial players in both countries getting more involved. South Korea, we've seen Hanwha start to invest in, uh, in some flat panel antennas. You've heard rumors about Samsung doing the Constellation game for some time. And then in Australia, we've seen uh, Optus, among others, trying to become more involved as kind of a, a, a comprehensive sort of space industrial supplier. So yeah, definitely some, some, interesting, uh, some interesting things going on in, in those couple of countries you mentioned.
0: Interesting to know this. So I think like overall, whether it's South Korea, Australia, or India, most of the Asia-Pacific region, it's been bound together, you know, with the ocean. So I'm coming to the point of the mobility market. Uh, We are looking at the overall market transition, as we mentioned. So do you think mobility market verticals, especially including in-flight connectivity and maritime, uh, there will be a potentially more demand for SATCOM technologies? especially in the Asia-Pacific region?
1: Definitely, yes. Yeah. So I, I think when we look at mobility and, and IFC, and, well, let's say mobility in general, IFC maritime specifically, um, I mean, we're seeing already this sort of this lowering cost of satellite capacity and much larger throughput in any given, any given spot. Um, that's an enabler. So if we look at, as an example, the amount of capacity consumed by cruise ships 15 years ago compared to now. I mean, that that number would have increased by, I would venture to say it could be a factor of 100. If you think about all the gigabits per second that are being sold by O3B and and others into cruise ships compared to 15 years ago, it would have been, yeah, could be a factor of 100. Um, On airplanes, I mean, it, it would be a fairly similar order of magnitude, so dozens of times increase. And I mean, up to now, if we look at the Asia Pacific region and we look at IFC, for example, the penetration rate among airplanes is, is very low if we compare that to say North America. Like in the US for the domestic fleet of most North American airlines or American airlines, you would have order of magnitude would be 60, 70% or more of these airplanes outfitted with some kind of in-flight connectivity. And if we look at say China, it would be less than 10%. And I would venture to say India probably less than 10% if, if any given that I, I think the regulations remain unclear. Um, and then you look at places like, you know, J- uh, Japan, probably a little bit higher penetration rate, but, but in general, there's still a lot of room to grow in the IFC sector in the region. And and the question I think will be something more like, you know, a lot of these countries, the airlines are, if not outright state owned, they have a certain level of protection, let's say from the government, they have a certain limit to the extent to which they are incentivized to do things that are kind of risky and potentially innovative. So as an example, I remember a few years ago at a event in Paris, uh, they were interviewing a, uh, a an executive from Air China talking about air flight connectivity plans. And this executive was saying, yeah, you know, we're still kind of studying this and it's still it's, it's still a review. And maybe in five years, we will have in-flight connectivity on our trans-Pacific flights, which is I mean, it gives an, an indication. And this is again probably 2019, so it gives an indication of the the speed of change in some of these companies, but also just the level of of conservativism. And so, I, I think when you look at let's say Thailand, where you know Thai Airways is, I don't know off the top of my head, but I would venture to say it's a little bit state owned, if not outright, you know, owned by the Thai government. Um, Thai Airways, I, I suspect, does not have such a huge incentive. You know, there's not a lot of competition. Let's say uh, for the High-end, long-haul, or even domestic flights within within that country, um, and so whether Thai Airways has such an incentive to to outfit their airplanes with with what is an objectively kind of risky proposition in terms of finances, I and mean, it's, it's an expensive thing, um, that, that's a real that's a real consideration. I think looking at the maritime sector, somewhat similar, although potentially it's an easier business case in some cases to close because you have, I think, maritime fleets in the region that are not particularly advanced in terms of their digital infrastructure. And so you could make a pretty compelling case to say, well, if you have a ship and you want to save money by having it be you know, better optimization of everything going on in the ship or better fuel optimization, or even making it easier to attract uh, employees, because a lot of people now, especially post COVID, like if you say to them, go work on this ship in the ocean for six weeks and have no internet or like very, very slow internet, um, that's a non-starter for a lot of people nowadays. I mean, it, it, you'd, you'd have to pay them a lot more, I would think, whereas if you if you say, well, we'll give you internet, like decent internet, um, you might end up saving money in, in, the, in the long run, because it might be that much easier to attract people to work for you. So again, these are all different for different countries, and, and obviously the region is very diverse, and, and there's even differences within these verticals. But but I think in general, it's very safe to say that there is a lot of room left to run in the mobility sector in, in the Asia Pacific region. Um, and, and I think getting to the last part of your point about, you know, potentially uh, land mobile kind of either autonomous vehicle, connected cars more generally, um, we have seen, you know, for example, Geely in China as an automobile manufacturer, they talk about having their own constellation uh, primarily aimed at like, kind of enhanced navigation, so not so much comms. But nonetheless, it's, I suspect, at least part of the reason that they would be downplaying the comms element is because communications is a very sensitive industry in China. Um, but I, I think either way, it, the point being that there is interest even among the region's auto manufacturers in having a kind of satellite component to what they're doing. So that, that could also lead to some upside in the kind of land mobile uh, connected vehicle kind of uh, sector in um, In in the region,
0: yes, I believe I agree with the point that you know there is there is a lot of room for innovation, especially like I would like to just share a quick incident. Like while coming, you know, having a flight from Paris to India, I I was actually facing this issue that there was no Wi-Fi. Like you know, we are the (laughs) India is one of the biggest democratic country, and we are you know one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And, you know, there is no connectivity. And that was kind of a little bit disappointing. But, you know, I was speaking uh, with the people from the airlines when I got down at the airport, you know, just just having a general conversation. And it was was a good thing to know that, you know, that there are some improvisations that are happening on the ground level from the policy framework perspective. So I believe uh, in the aviation sector, I think it's mainly in the hands of the Ministry of Aviation, once, once they possibly you know evolve or improvise their policies, uh, maybe in the future we we might see some growth in the IFC segment as well. Because I I believe if there are people like me, you know who are at the almost at the decade the decade of experience are you know hungry to work on even on the airplanes, the, I, I'm pretty sure there is a lot more population who really want to work while they are traveling as well. But you know unfortunately there are there is no connectivity at the moment. For such long flight. so I, I believe, uh, as you mentioned, you know there should be there. There is a lot of space for innovation, and I, I think there will be more push as we proceed ahead in the industry.
1: And, and just out of curiosity, what uh, what airline were you taking there from uh, from, Indi- from from France over to India?
0: It was Air India.
1: Air India, okay, okay, yes. Um, so it, yeah, it, it was it like was said, quite nice it, to yeah. see
0: they have improvised a lot as well. Uh, Air India, I think since. Uh recently the Tata has taken over. Uh, but I'm I'm hopeful the way uh Tata has, because Tata has also like their their partner company, or I guess the, it's the subsidiary Nelco, they, they have partnered with Telesat as well. So maybe in the future we might see something coming through uh, as a connectivity, you know, uh, medium from Telesat for the in-flight connectivity in the Air Indian, Air India. So there might be a possibility because i i'm not sure how these things will evolve in the future but as far as uh, i have seen like the way tata has built several industries in this country they have always taken care of you know how how things things will be more friendly towards the people rather than from a business perspective so i i think there might be some change in the in a year or two hopefully
1: yeah i mean that, that's that's an interesting perspective and and i i mean i suppose there's probably for a separate episode but but maybe today also there's quite a lot to talk about as it relates to um you know the deregulation maybe is not the right word although i think or you know changes in regulation in the indian satcom and and to a certain extent the space sector more generally it seems like there's you know the the idea of having you know a Tata type of company uh i guess in the case of air india it's more aviation but uh you know having a, a private company coming in and and being involved is um yeah, that, that's probably a, a welcome change and, and uh, you know, just creates maybe a little bit more dynamism or or just more kind of competition, as it were. So sounds like there's a lot going on
0: there. Yes, definitely. So uh, like coming to the, you know, the, I think it's, we are reaching the end point of the conversation. Uh, so I'd like to know, like, especially with respect to, you know, the business moments in Central Asia as well. So companies like Cassific, they're doing a Really good work, especially in the specific region. And so, with respect to that, what do you think? There are, are there any more opportunities for new players to innovate in the Asian region? As well as, what are your thoughts about the latest satellite business movements in Central Asia? From especially, we have seen Azerbaijan, which is growing, and then Kazakhstan, where SES is doing a you know a lot of business uh, since past one year. So, what are your thoughts on these questions?
1: Sure. So just, I guess, to, to tackle the first part of your question first about, you know, companies like KCIFIC and, and the innovation that they're doing, and, and then, you know, is there more opportunity in, in the region for such companies? Um, and then I'll get in a, in a moment to the, uh, the second part of your question about Central Asia. So I think Definitely we've seen with KCIFIC and, and others, but but I think really up to this point, primarily K-Cific, uh coming into certain markets, you know, typically the Philippines, Indonesia, and bringing K-A band capacity and, and bringing lower priced packages. And, and this has been, um, I think uptake thus far has been fairly promising. I mean, you, you've seen them, uh, KCIFIC in particular, having a couple of, of deals in Indonesia, but then also having uh, some distributors in the Philippines that seem to be picking up traction. And we've seen pricing for their their plans come down in certain markets. So, for example, I was looking at their pricing in the Philippines about a year year to fourteen to sixteen months ago, and the cheapest consumer broadband package was about 140, and about one hundred and forty US dollars per month thereabouts. Um, and now if you look at the cheapest broadband package in the Philippines from KCIFIC, it's just a bit under 100 US dollars per month. And that's, you know, it's a pretty significant difference if you're, uh, you know, if you're if you're, say, an upper middle class Filipino household. And you could imagine there being some demand elasticity there. So I think overall, this has been a very promising uh, development for the industry, this this bringing of, of lower cost consumer broadband type of services or even, let's say, village Wi-Fi, if, if you're looking at. At even a bigger addressable market, I think moving forward, though, um, there's a lot of room for more innovation. I mean, when we look at some of the uh, some of the some of the markets in the region, like there's not that much capacity right now. Indonesia has sucked up a huge amount of capacity for Bhakti and so. You could imagine more capacity, and especially on larger satellites, the, the bandwidth price could be more competitive, or there could just be better service offerings than than there are right now. And again, right now, the the issue being in some cases uh, insufficient capacity to offer you know those types of services. So that would be one area, and then I think another area that um, it's a very hard thing to to do, and I, I don't have a very good answer for how to do it, but you know, how to really expand satellite's footprint to the very furthest reaches. So it's not Asia Pacific, but I was speaking with a friend of mine who is the head of a satellite service provider in Mexico. We're talking about two months ago. And my friend was saying that one of the challenges that they face in Mexico when trying to deploy rural Wi-Fi hotspots is cash collection. Like you have customers that are buying prepaid, you know, kind of data sort of SIM card type things for this hotspot and they're buying this from local uh you know convenience store type of things and they're paying cash and then this the service provider they need to find a way to get all of these relatively small banknotes from all of these relatively far flung regions back to some centralized place and w- without having any of that money go missing or without having any of it get skimmed off the top or any of these things and like that that's a a real challenge in a place like Mexico and i i don't Know exactly how that would compare to, say, the Philippines or Indonesia, but I, you know, when you look at the per capita income in, in the latter two countries, um, it would be lower than Mexico. I, I don't know how much that would contribute to more or less difficult cash collection, but but point being, there is, I think, room to innovate in this sector in ways that are maybe not directly related to this, you know, the satellite side of the business or, you know, the, the, the bandwidth side of the business. Things like, you know, if satellite operators really want to connect all of the unconnected in all these remote places in all of these countries, um, there will be challenges that maybe are not so apparent, like, you know, how to collect large amounts of small banknotes from very rural places in the Philippines. And so yeah, I, I suppose without wanting to use completely meaningless buzz phrases, you know, fintech could be an interesting way to, to solve that. I and again I, that that has such a that's such a broad phrase in this context that you can take it for whatever you want it to mean. But but I guess point point being, um yeah, there's a lot of challenges and and the companies that can kind of identify and, and start to understand and address those challenges, um, there is still I think room to uh to innovate let's say and, and to, to expand the market um and, and again just to wrap up i think that one clear example of, of the the room for innovation is that we have seen very big satellites launched into the region and, and a lot of those satellites have filled up relatively quickly and so there is apparently let's say thirst for bandwidth at, at a certain price point and so now it, yeah it's a question of bringing more bandwidth and, and being more innovative about distributing that bandwidth and and collecting the um the associated you know fees for the bandwidth
0: yes definitely. I think there is always a room for innovation and i I believe like especially with respect to central asia we have we haven't recorded a lot more you know a commercial footprint from those regions of the world. Uh, but I'm I'm glad to see that you know, like countries like Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan as well, you know, growing. And I think that, that there might be a lot more opportunities, especially because we have seen uh, in countries like Mongolia as well. That there, there are a lot of remote region, and I think people are still, you know, not very well connected the way they are in the other parts of Asia.
1: Mm. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that that's 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 definitely true. That. Uh... Yeah, there's there's a lot of unconnected parts of this region still. Yeah.
0: So, uh, like moving at the end part of the podcast. Uh, so, plain as an industry expert, uh, that with a you know more than a decade of experience, uh, what message would you like to give to future generation stepping into the field of space science and technology, and especially for the people who would like to take up, you know, the business vertical. Or the commercial side of the space industry?
1: Sure. And I guess um, maybe just tying this in a little bit to the second half of the last question that I just realized I forgot to address. So, you know, Central Asian countries and kind of what are they doing? Um, So, I think in general, we have a lot of government support coming into the sector, and there's going to be a lot of companies that are able to raise money fairly easily from different governments and also that are able to um, to have kind of a sandbox mode kind of, of way of, of experimenting with some of these new technologies and and I, I suspect a lot of these companies are going to end up doing incredibly innovative things and, and having a big impact on the industry and, and on, on humanity more generally if we can be so so lofty in our ambitions um, but a lot of them I think are are going to be let's say not as well managed, not as well thought out. And, and indeed, I mean, some of the companies that you see today are, are a little bit, the business model seems a little bit fishy at best when you look at some of the projections. And so as a young person, I think it's important to be discerning to look at these businesses and to really ask yourself, do I really believe that this makes sense? Because I, I do think as you, you know, when you're in an industry that's in this rapid growth phase and money is just pouring out of the sky and everyone, you know, Spacs every couple of it seems like although that has died down quite some quite a lot but but point being um, there's a lot of easy money coming into the sector right now obviously space remains hard and it's not not everyone gets a large check from a venture capital fund but in general you know be discerning and and kind of be aware of of what your what your value proposition is and what you want to do with your career and I think one of the things to look these Central Asian countries, for example, you have places like Kazakhstan, which has a very strong space industry heritage. They have a lot of very talented engineers. They have some excellent infrastructure with their their Baikonur launch center, but then also um, some of the companies in in Kazakhstan are are doing quite a lot. But I I suspect that they are having challenges in maintaining talent. I guess a lot of their most talented engineers are are potentially looking to go somewhere else to to work. Um, and, And I suspect that you know, there's, there will be a certain level of, uh, how would you say contradiction? Maybe is not the right word, but there's going to be an inherent kind of ten- tension between countries like Kazakhstan saying, we want to develop our own space sector, or we want to have all these different capabilities. Um, but then at the same time, having a global space industry that is, is growing and that is, you know, you have, let's say Silicon Valley, I presume is attracting a lot more space industry talent than it was a few years ago, or, or places like Austin, Texas. Um, so yeah, I, I think you know, trying to, to take a step back, see the industry in a macro perspective, look at some of these companies and say, do I really believe in, in what they're really trying to do? Because again, some of these companies, um, they're raising lots of money evaluations that seem to be just completely out of touch with reality in some cases. Um, and, and really just kind of keeping a, a critical perspective in a time where there's just a lot of, of people saying, yes, we want to be in space. So. Yeah, I think these are important, uh, important things to consider as a, as a young professional coming into the sector. Um, and then I guess one last point probably would be to to network, to try to meet as many people as possible, because we're in a, an industry that's expanding rapidly. I mean, when I go to space industry conferences now, I see a lot of people that I don't know. And a lot of those people are, are young. And, and that's a very good thing to see. But it's also very different from the way the industry used to be, where, you know, the SATCOM sector and and space sector, even more broadly, it used to be, you know, everyone knows everybody kind of a thing. And and there are still certain areas, you know, SATCOM is still pretty, pretty specific. Um, There's areas that are still like that. But I I think as the industry gets bigger, as we get more people coming in, more new people, it's going to be even more important uh, to maintain an active network and, and to really, um to to try to you know meet the newcomers coming into the sector and understand what are some of these new companies trying to do and and just kind of be on top of of the sector so yeah I, I, those would be my my two two main pieces of advice i suppose
0: yes i think I'm, I'm i'm pretty sure the people who will be listening to this podcast will especially the future generation the the students and the research scholars who are trying to you know enter the space industry will be, you know, walking with the respect to the suggestions that you have mentioned just now. So thank you very much, Blaine, uh, for being, uh, you know, available uh, for the podcast and providing such a valuable insights on the industry and especially on the Asian uh, space sector. I hope we create a, one more follow-up episode in the future because there are a lot of questions that have come up while, while during the, being in the conversation, especially in the mobility market segments. So, thank you very much
1: again. Cool. Well, thank you as well, Omkar. It's been really, it's been good catching up, and uh, I'm I'm glad that we could uh, that we could have this discussion. So, definitely happy to catch up again next time. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, then please like, share, and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.